My mother died when I was 11, and my father was never around when I needed him. Life in Nicaragua has been hard, and many times food was scarce. When I was 15, my grandparents could no longer earn enough money to provide for me in my education. I went to live in a home with other children who were lost, abandoned, or simply too poor to it. But I dreamed of opportunity. I dreamed of what was possible. Being part of Orphan Network and receiving meals from rice and hunger has totally changed my life. It was not just about the meals I received or the support they provided. It was about giving someone like me the opportunity to survive and do something with my life. I am every child who has gone to get hungry. I am every child who did without. I am every child who dreamed of life without hunger. Every child who will rise to their potential. I am every child who will rise to receive an education. I am every child who will rise to earn their own. I am the voice of hunger. I am the voice of poverty. I am Minor Aragon and I will rise. He was tired, emotionally, physically, exhausted. It is likely that Jesus had just found out that his cousin, John the Baptist, had died. Beheaded by the king. And for what? Yes, John was bold in calling the king to task for taking his late brother's wife as his own. But penalty of death? John was the first genuine prophet in over 400 years. Was there no justice? Was there no mercy? And so this is the man that baptized Jesus, that his birth was foretold just as Jesus' was. He prepared the way for him, the coming Messiah. This is the man that, uh, whose mother comforted Jesus' mother as she was answering the call to serve her Lord. And so certainly, Jesus was mourning the loss, just like we would. And just like we would in his own humanity, he would withdraw to a place with his closest friends to mourn and to contemplate and rest. But what what was this? The crowds from all over the villages, they raced ahead of him. They saw where he was going and 
and gathered together. They were just normal people like you and me. They had families. They were somebody's brother or sister or mother or child. And they, they had hopes and dreams for the future. But they struggled to make ends meet. In the Roman economy, they probably had some sort of ration for food. They struggled from day to day. But they had heard about his teaching. They had surely seen some of the healings or, or heard how he had calmed the sea with his disciples. And they just wanted a taste of the source of living water. And so as Jesus steps off the boat, he sees the crowd and it says he had compassion on them. His retreat would have to wait. He sat down and began to teach them how to be in that moment. He began teaching them and healing their sick. But it, it was getting late, and so the disciples were getting hungry, and they said to Jesus, Jesus, we are, are hungry. You haven't eaten anything all day, and, and they are hungry. So what are you going to do about their need? So Jesus gives the disciples some food, and the disciples eat. Oh, and it is good. And they eat and they, they turn back to Jesus and they say, oh, Jesus, thank you, this is good. But, but they are hungry. What are you going to do about their need? And so Jesus hands the disciples more food. And they eat and they, they are satisfied. But they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, what will you do about their need? They're hungry. And once again, Jesus gives them more food. And they eat and eat some more, and they even have leftovers. But they say to Jesus, what are you going to do about their need? Well, if you know Mark 6, or any one of these stories in any of the Gospels, you know this is not really the way that story ends. But I often find myself in a position where I struggle to know what to take care of for my own needs and what to give to my brothers and sisters in need. This tension that we live in of making ends meet on our own, but also realizing the world that is before us. And so today we're going to kick around some tough conversations about hunger and poverty and what it means to live with compassion. For those of you who I haven't met, uh, my name is Kevin McGee, and I uh, am so privileged to be back here. Um, it has been almost five years since I uh, shared a message on this stage when I was on staff. And in fact, like Heath said, I actually had the opportunity to be a part of the youth group here when I was coming up in high school and learning about faith. Um, at the Contemporary Arts Center and Corporate Landing and the history that Spring Branch has. And I actually um, have learned this idea of compassion from you. That story I first heard that I shared here a second ago uh, was from a friend named Tom Weigline on my first trip to Nicaragua and learning about what it meant to serve those in need. 
I learned what it meant to care for children um, through our children's ministry with Sandy uh, and Anna. I always say Anna Banana has more compassion in her pinky than I do in my whole body. If you haven't gotten to know her, get to know her. Uh, I learned what it meant to care for our students on staff with Adam and Perrin Bradshaw. And of course, Natalie, who is possibly the best listener I know. I learned what it meant to care for the outcast and forgotten from Michael Simone and ask the question, who is my neighbor? And of course, now I get to serve with Heath and Lindsay and the staff that's here. Thinking about Troy, Troy and I played youth basketball together. I mean, this is home. And I learned about compassion from you. So now I get to work with this awesome organization called Rise Against Hunger. And I got a great team of folks that we get to tackle one of the most pressing issues facing our planet today. The need is great. 821 million people will go to bed tonight hungry and not know where their next meal is coming from. That's about one in nine. If you look around the room and think, one in nine of us, one person out of my row, maybe, wouldn't know where they would eat, and we would move mountains to feed them. But somehow, when it's they and them, we we forget that there's a face and a name and that they are someone's child just looking for an opportunity, looking for a chance to break that cycle of poverty that they were born into. And so that's what we get to help with. Uh, You know, a lot of times we think of hunger as the impossible. We actually, it's the analogy of the impossible, isn't it? It's like solving world hunger. But we're making progress on it. Back in the 80s, it was about a billion hungry. So that number has gone down, but the percentage of population has gone up. So even in the percentages down. It is possible for us to see a world without hunger. In fact, the United Nations has said that we are going to put a date on it. 2030 is when the uh, 17 global goals for sustainable development will end. And they're saying we could see an end of a, a world without hunger by that point. And every country is taking a portion of those global goals and saying, we're going to do something about this. But there's a lot of work to be done in the next 10 years. We focus on goal number two, which is zero hunger. And we do that through what we call the pathways to end hunger. It is our theory of change. How do we know that we're actually making a difference in the world and not harming those communities that we're going into, right? How do we serve responsibly? And so we do it through what we call the pathways to end hunger. And um, it's amazing the stories we, we hear some of these kids are, are forced into working uh, for their families early. They, they are robbed of the opportunity for an education because they have to go to work in some harsh conditions for unfair wages. They suffer from malnutrition and stunted brain development because they don't get the nutrition that they need. In a world where we produce more than enough food, we actually say it's not a production problem, but it's a passion problem, right? Do we care enough to end this? One day, our children and their children will have to look at the history books to understand what it meant. And it's on our watch that we get to do something about it. So um, 
you have made a huge impact in this mission already. Some of you may recognize these bags, or you may have filled those boxes. Um, Over the last 10 years, Spring Branch has hosted nine meal packaging events. You have packaged over, um, I think it's 140, yeah, 142,000 meals. It's amazing. Yes, you can clap for that. Your meals have been distributed in seven countries, including Nicaragua, which is where some of your meals went last year, to our good friends Orphan Network. And many of you have been touched by that mission as well. And so we're making progress and we're making change. And we'll have an opportunity that I'll talk about a little bit in just a second. But I know we took a look at this idea of the feeding of the 5,000 from a different perspective this morning, but I want to jump back into, I want to jump back into that story, and I want to talk about what's really happening there, what's really unfolding in the feeding of the 5,000. What is Jesus doing here? I do have to say, though, I know we are embarking on an evening where we will eat, and we will eat some more, friends, and I will be partaking just as you are. So don't get me in trouble with the women. Go out and buy the snacks, all right? Because I'll be doing the same. But I always say, on a serious note, it is so good to eat when you know others have eaten, when you have done something about it. So we read from Mark 6 today, and as we do, there's a couple of things to keep in mind with with this lesson. This miracle that we're about to see is not necessarily about hunger. A lot of times we associate it with hunger because it's on such a massive scale. But what Jesus is really doing here is he's trying to prove, he's trying to show us something. He's trying to show the focus of the story is on the miracle. That God is present in our world and he wants to involve us in his work. That's the focus of the story. And although I think it's a byproduct of any time Jesus addresses hunger or poverty that we should draw our attention to it because it's what he wants us to do. But the focus is on God and his presence in our, in our lives and how he's going to move us to do great things. This um, story is also the only miracle that is, shows up in each of the Gospels um, besides the resurrection of Christ. And so we have this idea that this is probably one of the most important um, miracles that Jesus does in his entire ministry outside of the resurrection. So it's important for us to draw our attention to that. Let's focus on Mark 6 for today, and we'll dive in. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. 
I want to stop here, and I want to focus on that word compassion. This is a pivotal moment in the story where we, where we see Jesus pause, and the direction of the story can go any direction up until this point. At this point, we know that it sets the stage for the miracle. So this word, compassion, is right at the center. What does it mean for us to be moved compassion? You see this reference all over Scripture. What does it mean for us to be moved to compassion like Jesus? I first learned about the meaning of this word through this book called Compassion. It's by a gentleman named Henry Nouwen, uh, an incredible theologian who taught at places like Notre Dame and Yale and Harvard. He was a Catholic priest who um, dedicated his life, somewhat of a Mother Teresa, and just poured out his life for those in need. And he unwraps this, uh, this word in this book, talks about the Latin, uh, the word coming from uh, pati and come. Pati meaning pity, where we get our word from pity, or to suffer with, and come meaning together or with, community. And so we we get our meaning of compassion from to suffer with. And he defines it a little further as he explains that definition. He says, compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. Full immersion in the condition of being human. We all are connected in this humanity. We all have this one life to live. And we are all created by the God of the universe. And so often we we forget about the the they and the them. And who are they? And what are their stories? The world is so big. And they just have hopes and dreams just like us. And so... We're called into this just being, right? This suffering with. What does it mean to just be in our spiritual formation as we grow in our relationship with Christ, which is constantly happening, right? We'll never get to the end. We are asked to go and be. It is out of our being that action comes. It is out of our being that God multiplies. One of the most important lessons I ever learned um, when going and visiting people in the hospital or when they're sick um, was just, it, was, it had nothing to do with what you said. It was just that you were present. Often we get that in Nicaragua where we don't even know the language, so we can't say anything, right? It's just being present, being with. Uh, there's a term that's being kicked around right now in international development circles called compassion fatigue. We're at a place in society where we can see all of the problems at one time. We see the floods. We see the droughts. We see the political unrest. And it's too much for our brains to comprehend at once. 
And so we have this compassion fatigue where we actually do nothing. But I'm here to tell you that God is present in this world. And I guarantee you, he cares more about these problems than we do. And he wants to see them solved, but he wants to involve his people in the action, in the compassion. And that's what he's calling, to, calling us to in this scripture. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. It is already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Kevin, you give them something to eat. Insert your name. He is calling to us from the scriptures to care for those in need. He wants to show the world that there is a miracle coming. And he says, you give them something to eat. He wants a relationship with us in the process. They said to him, that would take more than a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? They come back with excuses, right? They say, the problem is way too big. They suffer from compassion fatigue. It's too big. We can't do that. And he always does this, right? He answers with a question. How many loaves do you have? He said. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. They were satisfied. Now what is going through their minds? Are they seeing bread multiply in their hands at the moment? What is happening here? But they were satisfied. He didn't just give them enough to tide them over. He didn't just give them a little bit. He overwhelmed them and lavished upon them what they needed. God doesn't just want to give us the bare minimum. He doesn't want to just... Um, provide for a little bit. He wants to lavish upon his creation, his children, the, the blessings that he has. And he calls us to do the same. Then it says, the disciples picked up 12 baskets, <clears throat> 12 baskets fulls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The men, or the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. And they obviously didn't count the women and children of that day. Some say it was close to 10 or 15,000 that day. 12 basketfuls. They had leftovers. I often say that my favorite part of Thanksgiving is the leftovers, right? They had so much. They had so much left over. 
And God had multiplied their gifts and their obedience through faith. As we look at um, even just the science of giving, get into, take faith out of the equation for a second. Just what exists, right? Um, The neuroscience behind giving, I've learned over the last couple years, is pretty amazing. Um, And you may know some of this. Uh, Oxytocin, the happy chemical in our brain, right, is released uh, when we give to others. Um, And not just when we give, but when we see someone else give. When we watch other people in acts of, uh, of stewardship and, and, and giving of their time and their resources, oxytocin is released in our brains. Uh, they've actually called it uh, these mirror neurons where when we see someone smile, uh, we smile back. So even in our very DNA, and I don't believe that's by accident, God has wired us to give. He's wired us to, be, to even multiply our, our gifts that he gives us. On a similar note, it, with the value of, of goods in the States, just the dollar that we may invest is multiplied in these other countries. Many of our brothers and sisters live on less than a dollar a day. And so uh, we, we see that the stats are probably about 1 to 16 on return on investment, Right? that when we invest in international development, we see a $16 return um, on that $1 over 10 years. I think that's better than Google. I wouldn't know, but I've heard. And so we see that there is hope in the world and that God has even designed it that way, that there is a a multiplication effort underway. And so the question is, is what can we do about it? Um, Like I said, you've done already so much amazing uh, work But this March, March 11th, we're going to have a Wednesday night here where we're uh, trying to package over 30,000 meals, which costs about $10,000 to make that uh, gift, right? And so we're going to be packaging out. Some of you have packaged with us. And this little bag right here will feed six people. There's six meals in this bag. It's about two bucks. And those boxes full of, of bags cost about $75 altogether. It's within grasp, right? It's within reach. And, and you can give, we're going to receive an offering in just a second, and you can go online. I think in your weekly, there's a QR code which you, can take you right online, and, and you can give there. It's just so easy these days, right? But then, what else can you do? You can, you can grow in your understanding through faith and life classes and spiritual development. What is God calling me to in this idea of compassion? You can, um, you can donate. You can volunteer through meal packaging. Uh, right here in the local community, um, there is hunger on our doorsteps, right? And although we focus on international development, um, the local food bank, many of you all support through the backpack program and other things that Spring Branch puts efforts behind. So there are so many things to get involved with. Maybe you take one of these meal packaging events back to uh, another group that you're with. Maybe it's a rotary club that you're involved in or, or your company wants to package meals or your school. Because it takes everybody. As we um, close today, <clears throat> I want to share a story about the first time my wife and I were in Nicaragua 
and many of y'all have been, and you know the need there. Um, so I want you to, I want to take some of y'all back there with us. Imagine yourself on a, on a school bus driving down the streets of Managua. And uh, you take a turn. We were with about 16 high school students that day. And it's hot, and it's, you're sweaty, it's humid, and it's dusty. There's potholes all over the road. And you're driving down into a canyon to a school and orphan home called El Canyon. And you get off the bus, and oh, just a horde of kids come running out to you, right, to meet the bus. And they see all of these kids. All these high school students, the gringos that they call them, and we've got bags of candy because we don't speak their language, some of us, and, and so that's the best way to connect with a bunch of kids. And there's this moment where this little boy, he's probably about two, he jumps into my wife's arms, and uh, his name is Angel, and he's got two suckers, and they're both unwrapped, and he's just going to town, right? It's just like, ah, this is the best day of my life. And sticky, and it's like dripping down his hands, and it's in her hair, and he's rubbing all over. I was talking to my wife after the first service. She was like, yeah. She was like, it was, it was hot. <laughs> it's like I was not, it wasn't the happiest day of my life. But she's like loving this kid, you know, and just called to, to hang with him. And so we're singing songs, and we're, we're dancing, and we're hanging out with our students and playing games. And he, um, he's getting heavy. And she, so she starts looking for an opportunity to pass him off to one of our high school students. And, uh, and he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have it. He was like, no, I am, like, I am latched on, and I'm not going to anybody else, and I'm hanging with you, sister. And, uh, and so, so they're dancing around, and she's tired and hot. And, um, and then all of a sudden, she feels this warm sensation down her side where she's holding him and wetness. Realizing he doesn't have a diaper on, she's presented with a problem. And so, but it's, but it's in, it's, it's later, you know, we, we have this moment and she realizes, you know, this is, this is the mess. This is the mess that God is calling us to. And even in our own treatment of God, right? Like we, we make a mess of things sometimes. And yet he has compassion on us. But this is the mess. This is the, the places of pain and brokenness that he's calling us to enter into. And so she, she does, a lot of parents will um, identify with this, right? She takes him to the nursery to get changed and um, she sets him down and starts kind of tiptoeing out of the room, you know, so he doesn't see her leaving. It's time to go. And we start walking to the bus, and she realizes that he is crying because he knows that she's gone. And he comes running out into the hallway as we're on our way out, and he throws up his hands, and he says, Mama, Mama. And it's, it's a realization that all he wants is to be loved and to be cared for. And that's 
compassion. That's what God is calling us to. And that little boy has had the opportunity to grow up with Orphan Network and eat these meals, probably three meals a day. And he's been given an opportunity to succeed. And so God asks us, how are we going to answer their need? Let us pray. God, it is hard to acknowledge the need in the world sometimes. We have so much going on in our own lives and we're running from one thing to the next. But God, you have called us to be a part of your mission. You have called us to step into the messiness, to go where it hurts and have compassion on those that we may never meet. God, you are in the world and you are making a difference and you choose not to snap your fingers but to use us to answer the need. Lord, I pray that we are the answer this morning. In your Holy Son's name we pray. Amen. Cause the God I serve knows only how to triumph My God will never fail Oh my God will never fail And I